Susanna Lassard is reimagining our world as a global place that has swallowed space. Bird-like, she perched at the Rensselaerville Library on Saturday and read from her new book, The Absent Hand, Reimagining Our American Landscape. Once the world was wide, she read, now we live in collapsed space, the chip in our pocket. Lassard wrote much of her book in her Rensselaerville cottage and considers the meaning of its landscape and how that sense of place has changed. She said she went all over in random ways to a southern slave cabin, to the McDonald Ranch House in New Mexico where the first nuclear weapon was assembled, and thought that would be her book. But the journey turned out to be her education. This week's podcast records her reading, sometimes poetic, other times philosophical, and her many layered answers to questions from the score of listeners. Thank you very much, Kim. Thank you, library. That is such a special place for us. Thank you, village. Um, I say this from the bottom of my heart. I wrote much of this book here you allowed me to come in, you embraced me, and you let me be a semi-recluse a lot of that time, which is what writers do, uh, according to what I needed at the moment. I can't tell you how wonderful a gathering container you have been for me. So it's very meaningful for me to be reading here today. Um, I'm just going to read a little short piece at the beginning which in some ways sums up where the book went. Uh, It's a book about landscape and what landscape can tell us about where we are today, how its meaning has changed. So I'm going to read this little bit and then I'm going to say a little bit more about how the village actually came into being part of the book. Once the world was wide, Now we live in collapsed space, the chip in our pocket. Once wilderness was beyond society, now even the storm bears our imprint. We are awed by ourselves. We are frightened by ourselves. We have acquired godlike powers. We can't govern ourselves. Besotted by our grandeur, we consider geoengineering. Befogged by our data, we grope for transcendence. We pretend we are small, a figure in the furrowed field, sowing woodlots and windrows, riding the hills to their crests all around us, as always. But wherever we turn, we bump into ourselves. We live as in a walled garden now, walled by ourselves. We have been building this wall for some time, but now it's complete. That is new. (coughs) And yet, our surroundings remain as radiantly mysterious as ever. The connection to place remains deep, touching the core of our being. Landscape is our mirror, our book of revelations, as always. This is where reorientation starts. So that might give you a general idea and seem rather cryptic at the same time. I hope a little bit cryptic, since it takes me the whole book to really delve into that. Um, So, What um, basically happened with this book was that I, uh, and I'll read you the 
the sort of original intimation that set me off on it. But I had this sense that that the meaning of place had changed, and I I kind of I took off and did a lot of reporting, just digging into different places. It went all over. Uh, I didn't, uh, in a sort of somewhat random way, purposely, because I didn't want to pre-frame things. Uh, I didn't want to go to an, you know, an inner city here and a, 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 a rural place there, that kind of thing. I wanted to just throw the dart at the, at the dartboard, of, at the map. And um, I uh, thought that was the book. All that work, all that reporting, it actually was my education. Um, and the book ended up using some of it, but I couldn't stabilize it because actually what was happening was this was a very intense period of transition and still is that we are living through. And the world kept changing under my feet. And that is why I ended up having to also write and anchor the book in places I knew well. So now I'm just going to read a little bit. This is a smorgasbord, um, uh, and it, it's hopping even sequentially in the book. The book can be read on a number of levels. You can actually read it as a uh, just a sequence of, not even a sequence of essays. You can read them separately, but they actually are a sequence, and actually they're not essays, they're chapters, and actually it's a book with a very quiet argument in it. All right, so um, here is the sort of initial... Instinct, and I, I'd like to just say that I'm. There's a certain type of nonfiction writer that I am that really uh, uh, believes in what we do as worthwhile as a form of thought and exploration of the world. That that it's not the same as scholarship. It's not the same as what expert geographers do, but it's very important because it will pick up and show things that those people or the economists and all the people who do very important work. Uh, trying to understand our situation. So, do. And what you do when you do this is you, 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 you follow little paths that lead. You, you follow fissures, things that don't quite make sense. You don't take topics. You go where you're sort of led by your curiosity. And it's a, it's a fragile thing. And I couldn't even put this at the beginning of the book. It's so fragile. But I think you might identify a bit with it. In 1990, I moved to Brooklyn. It was still possible then to have lived a long life in Manhattan and hardly ever gone to Brooklyn. Mm. Moving to Bergen Street, I felt I had fallen backward through time into the arms of a city that was unselfconsciously dreaming. Just as decades ago, wandering into a Roman piazza one could feel oneself to have stumbled on Italians in their natural life, so I, on first getting to know my Brooklyn neighborhood, was entranced by what seemed to be the ordinary wonder of an intact civilization. But these were my own people, and this was my own city, and while the particulars were new to me, I felt reinforced by something to which I belonged that was vastly larger and more enduring than myself. The fine-gridded streets were a trellis of accumulated idiosyncrasy, the root-heaved slab of slate, the rough bark of an old tree, a plaster Madonna to one side. In another front yard, Mr. Morales' triple bypass scarecrow saluted passers-by from his aluminum chair with vigorous gallantry in almost all weathers. These were new to me, yet a part of a language of place I could read well. 
classical cornice spoke through sycamore lattice. The faded formal facades gave the street a casual transparency. A garbage truck grinding in a cold rain was a groan from the gut of creation. Pigeons banking at the corner of Bergen and Hoyt flashing white underwings broke up the surface of the world, revealing understories of existence in myself too. The newly discovered native landscape can develop us in ways that in a foreign place takes years. And yet, signs that the world had in its essence changed floated in, but they were from afar and second hand. Now here I hope you'll feel some identification at this point. Little things. My living room was on the second floor, high ceilinged in the 19th century style, making room for thought. One day in that room I was reading The Ends of the Earth by Robert Kaplan. This book is an anti-romantic romantic travelogue dedicated to shedding light on the grim contemporary re reality of unvisited reasons, shanty towns in Asia Minor, depressed cities in the former Soviet Union. Famous or beautiful sites are avoided. But one passage nevertheless described traveling by bus across a plateau in the Him Himalayas known as the Roof of the World. Even the jaundiced Kaplan was thrilled by this geographical drama, though the reader knows this only through his observation of three hippie kids who didn't look up from their thriller paperbacks to take in the roof of the world. In an unusual aside, Kaplan expresses disgust at the kids' indifference. In this becoming, in spite of himself, the old-fashioned traveler agog at the mysteries of far-off places. I, Kaplan's reader there in my lofty room, was shocked and angry along with him. But what really hurt was an intimation that maybe the roof of the world had indeed somehow been drained of a meaning it once had, that the kids were just making a personal choice as of one dish over another on a menu that they were not, in other words, stupidly indifferent to something important. Later in my struggle with the meaning of place, I would come to see this double take, less as reflecting the reduction of the world to consumeristic travel, though that is a considerable effect of our time, and more as a stepping back of one layer of reality and a stepping forward of another. What was the difference from the point of view of the moon between reading a book or looking out the window or, for that matter, dreaming? Um, I have a few other, like, of those effects um, that just said something's different here. But one, as we now know, is the effect of our digital tools, which can just simply erase reality around us, uh, literally in our consciousness. You can forget who's in the room with you, or, uh, but also have collapsed the space of the world. So here we get to that somewhat later in Brooklyn. A bit later, right there by my tall parlor window, I got hooked up to the internet for the first time. The connection was dial-up, remember that? And it took a while. A friend had warned me that waiting time between searches could feel dead. 
and to have a book handy, which I did. But then my monitor flickered, and there it was. A few random searches reading in between, and I understood that internet was the dumpster of everything. Shakespeare, medical information, maps, lies, advice, all unrelating. Junk and greatness cohabited cheek by jowl without speaking. Nothing like a library, even a disorganized one like mine. Not even free associative in a private way, searchable only by, uh, searchable only by nonsensical, often nonsensical keywords. Nothing at all like the trellis of accumulated idiosyncrasy of my street either. Still, this dumpsterous incoherence was strangely, strangely familiar, not unlike the illogic of dreams. The internet was a deeply distracted thing. But isn't that not new? One got used to it almost in an instant. Okay, I got it was the feeling. I was quickly bored, actually. A deflective reaction, of course. It was when I got off the net that I had my transitional shock. Looking out my window at the facades, the balustrades, the pediments, I now knew the truth. This steady-seeming scene was in fact perforated by the reality I had just entered through my screen. In a moment I understood, I'm not sure how, that the global space compacted into such screens had swallowed place in, its old, in the old sense, and that what I was seeing with my eyes through the window was not solid at all, but somehow secondary. The screen was a portal into a kind of collapsed space that had sucked the world into itself. I felt rather than saw that the block, even while gamely expressing Victorian confidence, was actually like Swiss cheese perforated by holes that were portals to the collapsed yet world-containing space of the Internet. In this, our physical environment seemed to have somehow been turned inside out with the seemingly containing houses on the street actually inhabited by a kind of space that in its way was more encompassing, more outside than even the great outdoors. As a result, the block itself was no longer entirely a here in the way it had once been. I know that I understood the reality of global collapse space all at once because I remember how that very day, encountering someone who had not yet been on the internet, I was acutely aware of what they didn't know their innocence. I envied them and was frightened for them because some of their most basic assumptions were delusions. I didn't know if it would be a favor to disabuse them or not, but in any event, there was no way you could communicate this just by talking. So those were some of those <laughs> early experiences, and I want to read this last bit, which comes back to the familiar. Even after my initiation into the internet, the old experience of place by some miracle sometimes still returned full-fledged. One January, a blizzard came to Brooklyn in the night. Climbing upstairs to the parlor in the morning, I found that the snow had blown in under the rickety French doors that led to the garden stair. On the street side, the blizzard had splattered the windows in a leopardy pattern. The wind whistled in the chimney, and it was cold. So I lit a fire and settled in beside it with a book. The book carried me away, while at the same time I felt supported by the solidity of the house. The scrape of a snow shovel on the sidewalk startled me as if from a trance. The sound seemed amplified, as if happening right by my ear. 
There was something emotional about it, something of a creed de cœur, yet also peremptory. The sun was shining now through the pattern on the windows, but I still couldn't see through them. Another scrape, get out here. So I put down my book and went out through my three sets of doors, stepping onto the stooped landing. The blizzard had made a joke of the street. The cars buried in snow were wind-blown into cars of the future. The balustrades that were snow-crimmed as if with the balustrades were snow-crimmed as if with ermine. The cornices were snow-extended like baseball cap brims. Something about the scene reminded me of woods that went on and on. Brooklyn was my last time on earth as I had known it. So you can see this is toward the middle of the book. It actually is about the beginning of the exploration, but it's so fragile that I could not put it at the beginning. Um, I also had then did all my traveling around and really understood a global economy that landscape really reflected work, economies, built landscapes, designed them, residential patterns reflected the work. This was not native to me. I was just a place romantic. Um, <laughs> economics, no, don't reduce life to economics was my, and I don't, I, but I think it's a very important part of landscape and culture as well. And uh, so I couldn't stabilize it, and I ended up needing to bring in places I knew well. You have Brooklyn there, and uh, uh, I started, and then and the uh, another and the inaugurate, the first one is Rensselaerville. Um In fact, the whole first chapter is about Rensselaerville. I'm not going to read that because we're here in Rensselaerville, and it'd just be a little <laughs> redundant, I think. But um, I do want to read. Let me. Look at the time. Okay. Um, I uh, began to look at a lot of things about our landscape, uh, and two big themes came up. One became was the past in the landscape. It seemed to me the meaning of the past had changed with this transition. And um, a lot about slavery came up, and actually there now is a lot of that in the air. There wasn't then. There was no, uh, there was only one museum of slavery, the whole United States, which was a little uh, kind of impromptu uh, uh, outbuilding on one of the plantations down on River Road. Now there are many, and some that I haven't even seen that I've heard about, the lynching monument in Birmingham and so forth. But at this time, it's happened really fast. There was none. Slavery's a big one. Another underlying thing for me that came up as I thought about the meaning of place was the whole Cold War and the nuclear grip. And in some ways, that had been my first experience as a child on that generation that was under the desks for, you know, bomb shelters. Yeah, taking cover from world-annihilating weapons <laughs> under your little desk, <laughs> which told you that there's a disconnect somewhere. And... Um, that was, I began to see, like our first experience of global space. Like that was something you couldn't escape from. It was world-encompassing, and it was way back. So I want to read just a little of that. It's from the Runcelaville section, and um, it, uh, it has a bit of Runcelaville at the end, but not too much, but an unexpected, maybe. 
Um, I went, ended up going to Truth or Consequences, New Mexico, blah, blah. I ended up at Trinity. I actually didn't want to go to Trinity because a lot of writers had, and there was a sort of uh, futility to trying to wrest meaning out of Trinity that I didn't want to do. But it ended up right in my face, so I went. Um, and I went with a guide, and uh, and then I uh, we saw the site and all that. And then... Um, after that, we went to the place where the device had been assembled. This was the McDonald Ranch House, which my guide told me was a sheep farmer's homestead built in the basin in 1913. It's the Tularosa Basin in the Jornada del Muerte Desert. The ranch house was small, simple adobe, a single story with a sloping four-sided roof. Two sheep farming families lived there in succession, eking out a living in the desert until the federal government decided to use the basin as a bombing and gunnery range. The McDonald Ranch House was two miles from the Trinity site, and the explosion blew out its windows and bowed the roof inward. After the experiment was over, no one took care of it. Rain came in and wind got under the house and destabilized it and sand blew up through the floorboards until 1984 when some preservation measures had been taken. The measures restored it to its pre-explosion state. I never oppose preservation because there's no telling what we will need in the future and once something's gone, it's gone forever. But the very idea of preserving the venue at which the possible annihilation of everything was inaugurated had its own contradictions. <laughs> the damage to this humble structure was hardly instructive as to the power of the atomic bomb. Still, I wish that I could have seen McDonald Ranch House with its roof stove in and its interior sacked by sand and rain over the course of half a century. That would have offered a direct connection to the intrusion of the Trinity experiment into the passage of time before and after. The McDonald Ranch House in that state would have conveyed the vulnerability, the humanity, and the animal time-boundedness of the physicists, the government, and indeed us all. Inside, the door jams were square-cut and painted brown, the doors green with lighter green panels, the latches were in small black boxes affixed to the doors with brown glass doorknobs attached. The floors were of two-inch boards, brown and varnished and worn. The walls were adobe, painted light blue, and it cracked and fortunately not been repaired. A naked bulb on a wire hung from the middle of every of the ceiling in every room. In one room, the moldings around the ceiling were a greenish blue, and above them were faded, alternating stencils of a daisy and a candle. An aesthetic touch to sweeten a lonely life on the desert range. The rooms were empty. Between rooms were wooden thresholds. One room plainer than others was labeled the plutonium assembly room and there was a handwritten note attached to the door jam, please use the other doors, keep this room clean.
the guide was chatty. I couldn't get away from her. She kept <laughs> telling me these disparate facts. It was only later that I got a few minutes to myself out of that door just to see what was there. This evidently wasn't in my guide's guidebook. She had no interest in following. With relief, I stepped onto a wooden porch. While I had been inside, a very light rain had fallen. The smell of the desert was strong. Clustering near the farmhouse was a crumbled dwelling with a chimney, the ruins of sheepfolds, corrals, barns. They had been made of local stone and timber, neither, pl neither plentiful here. The scale was scrimped, picturesque, pre-picturesque, reflecting the brutal hard labor entailed in turning a wilderness to human purposes, extracting something out of nothing with mingy returns. Because the structures had not been preserved but had deteriorated naturally over time, the continuum was completely intact and shocking. This little frontier sheep ranch had been built only 32 <coughs> years before Trinity. Barely a generation and a half had passed since the building of the ranch house and the way of life it represented had gone on more or less the same way right up to the time of Trinity. You could sense the hardship of quite recent times, but there also remained a quality of established agrarian place that suggests there is no point in going anywhere else. In which you are here and here only while the rest of the world barely exists, the hominess of the tiny domesticated nook where cacti grew quietly and butterflies came out and fluttered whenever the wind momentarily stopped. Mostly the wind blew buffeting my ears. On one of the wooden window frames, there was a loose piece of wood swinging on a nail, tappity tap, tapping in the wind. My notebook fluttered, and then the wind sounded as in pines. The no pines were around, and the sun warmed my back, and there were hawks in the sky. And then, when the wind got still stronger, there was a deeper sound in it. With the deeper sound, I noticed more clearly the scraggly bushes around the ruins, the shards of crockery on the ground, the crooked posts of what had once been a pen of some kind, become so wind-worn, so honed, that they had acquired a twisting-grained expressiveness. A system of gutters on the house collected rainfall and deposited it in a cistern in which the physicists had taken swims, as I had seen them doing in a photo inside. The meaning of the site, notwithstanding I liked this place in the same way I had liked Canebrake, which was a slave cabin. A pooling of time, an enlarging warmth, a sense of human presence past sheep husbandry, the young man in the cistern. There's some pages of thought, which is hard to listen to when you're sitting in a chair. But this... <coughs> flows right into this. Just three houses up from my Rensselaerville cottage, the village ends and a path leads into the woods, into the narrowing gorge, along the screen, stream, and then up to the top of the falls and beyond to a lake above. 
This is part of a preserve. Funny word for something wild, as if it were a jam, something boiled down to an intense sweetness on a stove in a kitchen. But when I think about it, the word is just right for a protected wild place that has become intimately known through many revisitations in multiple seasons at all times of day, through many in rain and under the moon and in the extraterrestrial brilliance of a June summer morning. One walk that stands out took place many years after my visit to Truth or Consequences, which was part of the Trinity expedition, on a day when the sky was lowering and the light in the space above the stream below the falls was green. The path up to the ledge at the top of the falls goes through hardware wood forest with birch mixed in, and some of the birch was down, white slashes in the forest floor. Further along, a gleam announced the lake ahead, and then the path led into the open, down along the shore, where mature oaks in long grass lean over the water on one side, and on the other, wooded land climbs steeply. On this particular walk, just as I came to the lake shore, a light rain set in, and a surge in the breeze indicated an imminent change in the weather. The oak boughs stretching over the path protected me from the rain, and then they didn't. So I moved into a deeper spot near the trunk. I could hear the patter of rain on the leaves, distinctive, almost assertive. I listened, and then the rain increased a tiny rustle, increased a tiny rustle of rills coming down the slope behind me, joined the patter, and the soughing of the wind became deeper, which reminded me of the McDonald Ranch House. And there I was, the sense of psychic largeness, warmth, the sense of an agrarian place can convey that everything is where you are, that you need go no farther. The rain lit up a bit, but a bottle of ink had been spilled in the sky above me, though the far end of the lake was already bright again. To escape heavier rain, I hurried homeward, and just as I got to the woods, there was a big crack of thunder and then torrents. So I took a shortcut to a road that pitches steeply into the heart of the village. When I came to the crest of that pitch, I saw below me the rooftops of the cluster of houses. This was a sight I knew well. But rising behind them, what can I call it? Surely rainbow is too thin, a Crayola word. The prism broken out, and unembarrassedly Crayola it was, and gargantuan and really bright, almost neon, powerfully upthrusting. It looked like the lower portion of an enormous column, except that you could just begin to see the curve before it disappeared into the low clouds, a different architecture from ours. The village roofs huddling the pot of gold down on the blood print plane. Behind, the rainbow was a picture book joke. The village does that every so often, testing our sense of humor to see if we have become too grand or too ironic for simple wonders. One day a Santa will be on a roof. Well, the rainbow was funny and it was cute, but I had just been listening to the wind behind the McDonald Ranch house. So I was feeling more naive than ironic, a stranger in a strange land of enclosure with which the rain, of which the rainbow was a piece, unfolding as it did the spectrum of bright colors hidden in seemingly ordinary light, our rose window. Thank you.
standards board. I don't know <laughs> what you could pick up from that, but I hope some things. Is there anybody would like to uh, ask something about it? Yes, I, I, I'd like to just tell you something that happened. Yes. Uh, your book. Yeah. There we go. About two weeks ago, I took your book over to visit Shirley Siegel, and I read the first chapter aloud to her, sitting on her porch swing out behind her house. And I, you know, she listened, you know, she's 101, I think, as you all know, and she's still very much alert and awake, and she still reads the complicated legal, uh, you know, history books that her daughter sends her, and whatever, and things taking on the current housing crisis in New York or whatever right. else she's interested yeah. in. Yeah. And so I started to read to her, and I didn't get halfway down the first page when she stopped me, and she said, this is magnificent. <laughs> and, and in case we read, we read the entire chapter, yeah. and then I wanted to ask you, Eric said he was going to try to stop down at the house to get her a copy, and if he didn't manage it while you were still here that, at that point, I'll take one today for okay, her. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Um, you know, it's a book that took me an awful long time. I'm losing my height here. Think about it. Do it. Um, and it's wonderful, and it does have those layers. I think you can read it on different layers, but it's lovely to hear someone picking that up. And there's a struggle underneath it, too. It's very hard to go through the transition we're going through and to lose a lot of what we have known and to really not know where it's going. So it was hard for me. Place uh, has always been a touchstone of existence for me and I think through place. Uh, the change in the meaning of place is not the most important thing we're dealing with. Climate change certainly has done that, though that's in another part of the book. It's changed the meaning of nature completely. So it's lovely to hear a close reading, a quiet, deep reading. So any other thoughts or comments? Yeah, Sue. I'm not sure I understand that concept about how the computer collapsed space. Um, it's that distance doesn't matter at all in the computer. It actually is a tiny increment of time that it takes for a message to get from Singapore to here. But it's not an increment consistent with experience. It's an increment... Uh, that shows up in investment where uh, things, when things are changing and people, the, if the message is coming by a complicated route, somebody else might get the jump. Uh, but it's like um, all subatomic life. It's, it's not time as we experience it. So you can be talking in conversation with friends on email and they can have traveled around the world and you didn't even know it. Um, it's, it's a spaceless place that we live in now a lot. Um, another manifestation is that, you know, uh, a car can be made in five different countries across the world uh, and come together. This is common. Um, and uh, that's all managed by the computer. It doesn't matter where it is. So that, that's what I mean. 
uh, you can be sitting uh, next to your beloved uh, in your living room, and your beloved is on the, you know, you don't even know where they are. They're, they're <laughs> off somewhere and uh, may not even hear you say something. It's very absorbing, this space. Have you noticed that? You go into it, you uh, have no idea of time passing. You forget where you are. It's not like a book. Or you're kind of holding the book, you're in the chair, you get lost in the book. Well, that's things and communication. I can see how all that's collapsed. But landscape is still out there. Yes, it is. And you can get a picture on your computer, but that's not going to show you what you would see if you were there. No, it doesn't. And being close to one another is important as the real estate values in Silicon Valley attest to that the people who invent this stuff know they need to be near each other because things happen between human beings when they're in the same room that don't happen in the collapsed space. Um, and that's an interesting thing. But, you know, it's hard to read little sections without conveying a nostalgic or elegiac view, and that isn't my intention at all. I'm not interested in an elegiac. I feel a lot of loss but I'm not interested in asserting that, and I'm not interested in saying this world is less good than the one we are leaving behind. I'm interested in reimagining the world, because I think with these profound underlying changes, our environment is very different, profoundly different from what it was, and we need to understand that. Just as we need to understand what can be done uh, with our elections, by using Facebook and artificial intelligence. How can we even begin to comprehend that danger by something, you know, something that is so... No yes, Mary. Hey, Suki, can you talk a little bit about spaces that you went to that you didn't recognize and what those spaces that you didn't recognize meant to you in terms of trying to create this common sense of place? Yes, well, I left out... Yeah. I, I, did, I read about very familiar spaces. For me, my age, uh, watching big, big changes in the American landscape from basically city and country to this thing we don't really have a name for. We call it sprawl. It's an odd word. It's unsatisfying. I thought of sprawl essentially as a landscape destroyer. I don't like sprawl. I avoid it if I can. If I'm in it, I get through it as fast as I can. I don't like malls. They... For this book, I was forced by my own logic to realize, actually, this is the physical manifestation of, at the very least, the economic truths of our time. It is a landscape. It's very new. And I spend the whole last third of the book interpreting it and trying to learn from it where we are and who we are and who we have become. And one very fundamental thing about it is that it reflects this slide, it's the meaning of the title, it's one of the meanings of the title, it reflects the fact that work is no longer related to muscle at all. The whole industrial age was about tools that extended physical power. The, we have tools that extend the power of mind that kind of work can be done anywhere, and it doesn't necessarily show up in the landscape. 
It doesn't design the landscape. We have to be somewhere. We're in bodies, but we can do work anywhere. We can have the back office in Texas. We can, it, you know, it started with uh, major international uh, uh, corporations moving out of cities, out into the sort of edge land of cities, called edge cities for a while. And people, planners desperately tried to make sense of it, calling, oh, it's edge cities. No, that isn't exactly right because they actually don't cohere, they scatter about, and really anything goes physically. We don't have the hand of work designing our landscape as we always have. Industrial work designed our landscape. It designed not only because the factory was by the river where the coal was in the hills, but the the industrial city, the grid, the work that housed the workforce and so forth are cities that were seen as horrifically enormous when they appeared, um, were designed by industrial work. And here in America, where we do not have much planning, uh, we do not have planning powers at the top, uh, every other developed nation does, um, we didn't, work still designed our landscape to a degree, but when it stopped being that physical hand, it just went completely haywire, which is why you have a complete, really it is an incoherent landscape, but it expresses something. It's real, it expresses um, a number of, of different things, and I go into that. It, it does actually in some ways express the Cold War because there were government measures put in place to get people out of cities, to get businesses and people out. Part of that sort of spread out that happened here and not in Europe, for example, when there has always been a sense of public custodianship of landscape. Um, so I'm told that I tend to pile idea upon idea, so I'll <laughs> stop there. Yeah, Diane. <laughs> Have you always been aware of place and landscape, or is this something that came to you later as a result of your life experiences and your travels? No, I just always have been. I wrote an earlier book uh, called The Architect of Desire, which is a memoir. It's a family memoir, and it's set on a family place that uh, was, you know, sort of a family compound in the North Shore of Long Island, and the place was beloved to everybody in the family and had tremendous familial meaning. And and I pursued, you know, the beginning of that memoir, I was just writing about interiors of architecture and places because they meant so much to me. I could write my way to the truth through place. I don't know what that is. It's I think we all have it to a degree, and I've just got a little double DNA, place <laughs> DNA. But I think through place. And I, I, whenever I've written something in the past, if there's a way to start through Pet Place, I will do that. But um, now with this one, I just went into it, and it was hard. It was actually very hard to get it stable, make it work. But I think it. I'm very happy with the results. So, yes. I want to go back to the the sprawl that, that you talked about, yeah. and how you you know you set out to reimagine the world to not you know, feel this sense of loss yeah. and, and this sadness. Because I want to know, was that a challenge for you? Was it a challenge for you to not feel a sense of loss, a sense of 
really hopelessness because I know that when yeah. we travel now and we're forced to go on these freeways, which we just finished doing, which is why it's on my mind and why I'm connecting to you right now with this. Yeah. Uh, and we go through those those areas where everything looks the same right. because of the corporate takeover. Every yeah. town, there's no real sense of place. You know, it's just this earth, right. like you talked about, this sprawl. It, yeah. it, it is. We find it to be, I find that to be extremely upsetting. Yeah. And very sad. Yeah. And I just wondered, like, was that a challenge for you to not feel that? I mean, it seems like you would be the type of person who would feel that. Yeah, no, I didn't try not to feel it. I just didn't try to, I, 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 I'm a place reader. It is very disturbing and really hard to read. But it also tells us something. It's not meaningless. Um, I feel like our generation, those of us alive now, will not see where this is going probably. And what we, we come from a really well-developed civilization where we understood our world pretty well, pretty profoundly, had all literature and painting and everything about it, felt very free to challenge it. And then our, our job is to just stand on this crest and, and knowing what we know, but p be positive looking forward. Uh, bring, bring what we have, try to decide what really is important to bring forward with, with us and what isn't, and understand how relative a lot of that thinking was. Like, as a romantic of place, I mean, I didn't realize that. I just thought I was really responding to the world. This is the world is beautiful. It's amazing. This is elemental. This is the thing outside of society. It represents transcendence. Actually, that is a creation of the industrial age in response, as we all know, if we think about it, uh, to the kind of landscape-destroying effects of, in of industrial manufacturing and so forth. It was the Romantic era. It was not something that serves us now. You, you know, it has to be let go of because um, we now have responsibility for nature. Nature isn't our transcendence. We have responsibility for it. That's an indulgence that doesn't work. So I can feel the tear, but I see. But then what is it? How do I see nature? And, you know, I'll say this about um, our our tumult as we try to figure out this transition, we tend to deal with it in topics. So that we're looking at climate change here, big data here, uh, electronic communications here, I income inequality. We, we look at it at topics, well, you have to divide it up, don't you? But what a writer like myself, a literary writer who's really engaged with the actual world and does is try to see the world whole and try to honor it as a whole subject and begin to set aside. It's not like try not to feel. It's like go through the feeling. I don't want to topple ideas on top of each other again, but, but I will, before we close up, read the very short last sort of attitudinal paragraph. Yes. Did you explore at all indigenous worldviews in your, you know, in your travels, especially the connection to the land and um, the that is is still present today in indigenous cultures? 
Um, I'm very aware of that, and what I did include was this layer in our um, hi, uh, white American history or European-derived history of genocide of that those cultures, but I did not go deep into them because they don't help with reimagining what we've created. Partly, I mean, that's an investigation that doesn't help it, but also, you know, the thing about this is you can look at anything and it'll lead you to it because this is infiltrative. There is no escape from this. If you can go into an indigenous culture, you're going to find it infiltrated by this as well and changed in meaning. It sort of doesn't matter where you go. There's no, no need for a survey. Yeah. There might be one or two positive uh reversals going on that can make us feel, you know, uh, less despair. Um, one of them is that uh, the age at which young Americans get driver's licenses has gone up dramatically. <laughs> they don't want to drive. They don't, they don't want to drive. And they don't want to live in places where they have to drive. Mm -hmm. This is fascinating to me. I would have never predicted that. Right. But it has happened. It is happening. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing is the the uh, abandonment and dying out of shopping centers in some communities. Right. And, and uh, this is also a fascinating development. And we end up with, uh, of course, the dilemmas of do people go to bricks and mortar shops if they can buy on the internet. Yeah. So that is upsetting and a little perhaps depressing in some ways, but it may not end up like that because if what you end up with is that people don't want to drive to these godforsaken places anymore to shop, and they'll they'll shop online, but they do want to live in places they can walk to. Uh -huh. And those two things together may gradually shift community organizations, and there's nothing in those strip malls <coughs> that couldn't be dismantled and removed if the will were there. I mean, those are not places that are so well built that they're going to stand the test of time. No, the mall, mall the big mall thing. I mean, there is a, a, a romance, of, uh, a, a melancholy about the possible disappearance of malls. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but um, as threatening because people are shopping online. But, you know, one thing about this is the planning there is reconstitutes old patterns yeah. that reflect earlier times. And... New urbanism is a great example of that. Uh, seaside in Florida and so and Celebration Florida, um, and it doesn't satisfy this. Yen, it is great what you're saying. You don't have to go in your car anywhere. It's why do you have to go anywhere? I mean, here it is. You're talking to your friends. You're sending your Instagrams. So that's good for the uh, for the ozone too, but. To really figure out what a planning, what let's say we did have strong planning powers, what who would decide what to do? That's a big issue, and I go into that, and it's a fascinating one, really fun, because we are an example of a country that just hasn't had much planning at all, and. Um, and so, you're right that the, many European countries do. Oh, absolutely. They've been on this right. You you really didn't get anything like sprawl till very very recently. They didn't do the suburban thing. They said, Parrot said, no, we want to be in the city. Who wants to do that? As Paris goes, so went the continent. You only had it in England. 
We took it from Adrian. <laughs> um, yes? So, so oftentimes when you were talking, I would think about how drastically the world has changed in the last like 15 years. Yeah. I mean, to me, with all the, with the electronics yeah, and the yeah. internet and the cell phones, and yeah. much, much faster, at least in my lifetime, than it's, I mean, drastically than it has changed in previous times. Yeah. When you start thinking about whether, you, when you go someplace now, like maybe it's like a, like a national park, you go to a scenic vista or right. something. And you used to kind of think when you went there like years ago, everybody was kind of doing the same thing you were and thinking the mm -hmm. same thing. Yeah. And now I go like, I have like no clue what people are doing there. You know? Right. Because people are, you know, there's, I have no idea how they're experiencing it. You're taking selfies. Yeah, that, that's right. We, well, we fractured. We have niche music. We don't have the same music. I went to the Stones concert. It was amazing. Everybody <laughs> was there, I got to say. But, you know, now you have... This, we don't know, our culture is fragmented. We don't have canons, liberal arts, you know, people don't study the same things, so we don't know the same things. And I agree. You know, people will say, well, the world's always changing. Uh, America's always been changing. And look at all these other things. I don't think my grandmother went through anything like this. And she went from 88 to something like 1982. She lived almost a century. But you know what? She, first of all, could easily manage the basic tools of life. She could drive a car. She knew how to use the telephone. She didn't have to ask toddlers how to do some <laughs> thing. And uh, we went to the moon and so forth, but it was all this extended muscle kind of thing. It's a coherence. I think we're going through another order of change. You can't prove that, but I just think it is definitely that. We won't know it till 50 years hence when we look back. Some people say, same old capitalism. You know, that's like the counter-argument. No, it's not a major change. It's the same, it's just taken... I can't... I find it more useful to approach it as an epical change, similar to going from the agrarian age to the industrial age. And you know, Piketty wrote that book about capitalism. Says, write that big, fat book that came out. He says, right in the beginning, he says, I'm doing this because we have so much more data. But I have so much more information. But Dickens, Balzac, the novelist, gave us so much more. I can't even begin to compare with what I have available to him. And that, that's why I feel this kind of writing is useful because it, it brings in the experiential uh, part of things. And it was out of the great novelists that liberal reform, the political response to the predicament arose. And I don't think my little book can do that, but I think all of us writing many books can. So, all right, I'm just going to... Thank you. <laughs> Noelle is saying... Thank you. <laughs>